This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Value Inspiration Podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I'm creating a tribe of tech entrepreneurs that are on a mission to do something big and meaningful. I invite you to join the tribe as well, especially if you want to create change that matters and put your software business on momentum that you're proud of. The goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast is Neil Sahota, IBM master inventor, United Nations AI subject matter expert and professor at the University of Irvine. If you're not trying to disrupt yourself or your organization, then someone else will. And I think there's just a lot of opportunities out there, but we're used to, I'll call it like thinking about improvement, you know, how we make something faster, cheaper, less errors, rather than be more transformative and say, how could I actually do this differently? Right? We live in a that dynamic world. Things are always changing. New capabilities are always coming out. How can I do something like different? That's what really drives me. This is Neil. He's got 20 years of business experience and he works to inspire clients and business partners to foster innovation and develop next generation products and solutions powered by AI. Neil's work experience spans multiple industries, including legal services, healthcare, life sciences, retail, and for example, travel. Moreover, he's one of the few people selected by IBM's Corporate Services Corps Leadership Program that pairs leaders with NGOs to perform community-driven economic development projects. In addition, new partners with entrepreneurs to define their products, establish their target markets, and structure their companies. He is a member of several investor groups, like the Tech Coast Angels, and assists startups with investor funding. Neil also serves as a judge in various startup competitions, and is a mentor in several accelerator programs. I invited Neil to my podcast because of his drive to create meaningful change and social impact through innovation. We explore the myth around making money and creating social good. We dig into the need to change behavior and remove resistance as a critical component of the innovation process in order to drive the impact and adoption that we hope for. And we discuss the fine line around being successful and taking enough risk. And by listening to this podcast, you'll learn four things. Firstly, why companies that drive positive social impact perform fundamentally better than the ones that don't. Secondly, by solving a big problem with your software is only one aspect to success and momentum. It's the ability to change behavior, buy-in and mindset that is the other critical part. Thirdly, how we can deliver more success in driving change by helping people ask a better first question. And fourthly, that you don't always want to be 100% successful. If you're 100% successful, you're actually not taking enough risk. 
So hi, Neil. Thanks for making the time available today and be a guest on my podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on, Tom. I'm really looking forward to this. Something that I've been looking for as well, because I mean, I saw your profile and that triggered me to, to invite you. You've been an IBM master inventor and you work for the United Nations as an AI subject matter expert, which is very interesting. And then also, you, of course, you're an author, which makes us sort of, yeah, having a joint passion here. But because the main focus that, that I'd like to address here is the whole combination of AI, social good and business. And I've had a couple of people on my podcast that really were trying to make that combination because a lot of people always say, if you do things for social good, you know, there's no business there. And I've come to believe the opposite. I think these things work really, really together, like almost one plus one equals three. But I'd like to get your, your perspective on this. So before we, uh, we go into a lot of detail about this story, if you had to explain or had to characterize yourself as a person, what drives you in day-to-day life, what would be the, the words that, that describe you best? That's an interesting question. And it, it's, you know, I'll, I'll borrow it from my, my buddy, Peter DeMondis, that it's Uber yourself before you get Kodak, right? <laughs> that if you're not trying to disrupt yourself or your organization, then someone else will. And I think there's just a lot of opportunities out there but we're used to, I'll call it like thinking about improvement, you know, how we make something faster, cheaper, less errors, rather than be more transformative and say, how could I actually do this differently? Right? We live in a d- dynamic world. Things are always changing. New capabilities are always coming out. How could I do something like different? That's what really drives me. Music to my ears. Really. I mean, that's why I wrote The Remarkable Effect, which is exactly following that, that structure. I wasn't expecting this, but now, now that you uh, bring it up, yeah, fascinating. And I believe exactly the same. To kind of go mainstream, and, and in my book, I talk about you know, play to win versus play not to lose. And I see a lot of companies play not to lose, then you lose. That's what you don't want. So yeah, well, talking about the, the book that you wrote, Own the AI Revolution, and that's a practical guide to leveraging AI for social good and business growth. What brought you to the idea of writing that book? What, what was the spark of it? Well, I worked with you know, IBM Watson, and I helped actually build out that ecosystem. And I just saw a lot of companies, whether they're big or small, with a lot of the same questions and wondering what to do. I mean, ironically, they were all thinking about automation, with the AI and it's like, there's, there's so much more, you're unlocking only 20, 30% of the value. And I realized that I'm helping organizations one-on-one and there's nothing wrong with that, but I'd have way more effect if I wrote a book, right? I could reach a lot more people and hopefully answer some of these basic questions for them. At the yeah. same time, I'm a very big believer in like social good. And, you know, we don't, don't get the mindset or we're not at least raised with the mindset that, If you're going to do business or something like that, you focus on how to make money and there's nothing wrong with making money, but you could do social enterprise, social entrepreneurship, right? You can make money and have a positive social impact on the world. And again, I realized that I could maybe instill some of this mindset, you know, and hopefully maybe inspire some more people out there by writing this book, answer the questions, help them realize that, hey, you know what? I can actually do these two things at the same time. Yeah. Tell me more about it. I mean, the, yeah, the belief that doing something socially good is not about business. What is the misconception here? I think it stems from, you know, we always talk about for-profit, non-profit, Ton, yeah. right? And it's like you kind of have to do one or the other. 
And I know that also working from or a lot of nonprofits and helping them out that there's a stigma about like, if you're doing something that, you know, generates money and on the, on the converse side, you know, for profit, it's, you know, the, the goal of any company is to make money. So if you're doing something that's socially good, it's probably taken away from your ability to make money. And I think it's actually the furthest thing from the truth. I think, you know, if you look at the reports and all these studies that are out there, the companies that are actually focused on social enterprise, you know, having a positive social impact, they're like their IRR, their ROI, all these things are actually higher than the companies that don't. I think uh-huh. if I remember correctly, the last report I saw from the like, things the UN was like 18% better on an annual basis. The other thing is you think about, you know, talent. You look at the young millennials and Generation Z, they're very much about wanting to make a difference in the world. So even just trying to recruit, you know, good people, the top talent, if you don't have that, you know, approach about, you know, social enterprise, it's actually really hard to get these people because they don't want to just be about money. They want to be like, how can I make a difference? Yeah. That becomes a magnet at the end as well. So do you have any, uh, I mean, any inspiring examples where you say this, this company, uh, yeah, that fascinated me. I keep talking about it. <laughs> well, it, it, it's interesting dynamic because there's a, a startup company I know called Mosabi. And, you know, a couple of the founders came from very underserved communities and they wanted to help facilitate microloans, right? Yeah. You think about some of these small villages like in South America or in Africa where they, they probably only need two, $300 and they can make some small improvement, but it would allow them to maybe grow more crops, you know, maybe hire more people or improve their store you know, the, the way the systems are out there, you have to talk to someone in the bank and they're, they're not near like a major branch. You have to wait for someone to come by. Long story short, just trying to get this loan takes months. And so they said, well, okay, well, what if we could create a system, you know, create an app since most of these people actually have phones where you could do a lot of this work and get the loan that way. And they, they figured out a process where people could probably get a loan in just a couple of weeks. The problem then became they realized that, okay, we're doing this, but most people don't realize that they could get a loan and the loan can actually be beneficial to them. They didn't have the financial literacy. Yeah. And so they started thinking about that and said, how could we solve that? And they decided that, well, we'll create financial literacy programs. And they actually localized it to the local area culture language. But they decided that we'll just give this away, right? Because this is actually important just for people to know in general, you know, financial inclusion. And so they wound up, you know, starting their company, not just doing microloans, but having a positive social impact and just trying to help people understand, like, financial education, just the, the options that they even have to do something. Yeah, so true. I thought that's a great example of, hey, here's a startup, a tech startup, make, trying to make money and having a positive impact on the world. Yeah, that's true. I had a couple of those examples on, on the podcast already. And yeah, it's also always fascinating. I mean, Good Loop is one of them with Amy, the founder is called, and I forgot the name, Amy. Uh, Amy is her first name. Amy Williams, exactly. How could I forget? Yeah, and I had a couple of them more. And it's, it's indeed that thinking. But well, social enterprise, or creating something, uh, using technology for doing good, creating a business out of that. How does AI come in play? Because, I mean, that's what you read, wrote the whole, the whole book about. Only AI, AI revolution, the practical guide to leveraging AI for social good. 
And why specifically AI in this case? Well, that's a great question, right? Because, you know, my days working on IBM Watson, it was very much a transformative force. We realized that this is going to impact pretty much everything that we do personally and professionally. And we've seen it trigger what they're calling the fourth industrial revolution. And given that, as we kind of reinvent things or create new things, a lot of it is going to be you know, powered by AI. You kind of look at like if you're building a house, the foundation is kind of that, you know, AI component and you're building on top of that. You know, you're leveraging the strength of the AI. But as we kind of reinvent things, we also have an interesting opportunity to do it with a social impact kind of slant. And if you'll indulge me for a second, this is a great example of like the United Nations where they have the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. And you know, if you're not familiar with them, or you're, it's 17 goals for a yeah. better world that they want to accomplish by 2030. So like zero hunger and good health and access to justice. But it's lofty goals and they need some accelerators to make that happen. And they're realizing that one, AI can be a force to do that. And two, they can't do it alone, right? You think yeah. about the UN, it's a nonprofit. It's I think 47 agencies they're actually not used to working with the other agencies, let alone other groups. And, you know, pursuing this and trying to leverage AI to tap into making these things a reality, they've realized that we need the help of private industry. We need the help of academia. We need the help of other nonprofits and government agencies that we can't really do these things by ourselves. It's actually a chance to not just, you know, do good for the world, but help kind of reinvent the mindset that we could all be social entrepreneurs, that we can do things, even as private industry, that are good and make money. Has it also got to do with the fact that in order to solve these global problems, these socially, well, some of these social problems are enormous beyond, beyond what we can imagine, that you need this technology in order to actually make a meaningful impact. Because, I mean, we've been looking at these, these challenges, of course, for many, many years. And what I start to believe right now is the time is now right to use, to combine all the disruptive technologies together in order to address that in ways we have not been able to do before. How do you see that? Well, I agree wholeheartedly. I think I believe very much in the concept of convergence, that we have these, you know, technologies that are creating exponential growth. And we combine them together, it really grows. You know, I've seen combinations of AI and like VR around the impacts of ocean pollution and the, you know, climate change, the warming of the water, the melting of the ice shells. I've seen very similar things where you can like actually interact and live the experience of like a refugee, right? I think it's helping to create empathy and understanding. And I think that's what a lot of we struggle with. Like, you know, I live in California. Most people you know, believe that climate change is a problem and want to do something about it, but they, they're not strongly motivated to change their behavior a lot of the time because they're not directly feeling the impact of it. That's Whereas, true. like, you know, when I travel to, like, Sydney, you feel it every day, right? And that's why you see the, the population there is way more motivated about trying to make a difference. And I think these technologies help kind of crystallize that for us without having to experience the pain. So hopefully that becomes a good motivator for us in general. Let me make a small interruption here. Neil just gave an excellent example of what innovation is really all about. 
not only solving a meaningful problem, but creating the right sense of urgency around it as well. We need both sides of the coin, not just one. It's this knowledge that remarkable software companies are using to fuel their momentum. They are not only creating new value possibilities, they also make them more desirable. And with that, they create their flywheel for growth. And you can master these traits as well. Simply start by reading my book The Remarkable Effect, which you can buy at Amazon or anywhere else where they sell books online. Or what you can do is to join our tribe and level up with peer tech entrepreneurs to create momentum that you're proud of. You can apply to join the tribe by visiting valueinspiration.com. Back to the interview. Have you got an example of that? How this technology is actually helping us to change behavior or make us more aware? So, so you know, one of the one of the things that we always talk about is like climate change. And, you know, for most people, it's like a massive problem. And we don't, you know, like, well, what, what, what am I really going to do? If I'm one person, how am I going to really affect that? But as an aggregate, we can do that. True. And so there's, there's actually like technology, like there's a in kind of an AI simulation that kind of runs through your life, right? So like all the things you like would normally do helps you kind of stack up your impact to the climate positively and negatively, right? And over the course of your life, you see you have much more of an impact then you magnify it, right? And yeah, like, well, you know, there's 10 million people like you doing the same thing every day. And then you see, you know, whoosh, this kind of kaboom moment. It's like, whoa, we're having a huge impact. Yeah. If I just even use one last water bottle a day in the aggregate, if the other 10 million people do the same thing, here's actually the impact to the, to the environment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, have you got names of those type of apps? Cause I mean, I, I would like to experiment with that. I'm trying to remember because they're actually based on the Netherlands. Oh, really? Yeah. Hopefully it will come to me soon. If not, I'll definitely get, get it to you later on. But I'm, I'm yeah. just blanking on the moment. That is uh, okay. Well, well, we'll pick up on that later and I'll put it in the show notes otherwise. So one of the things that, I mean, typically when you think about social good, you think indeed a lot, a lot about not-for-profits. In many cases, you start thinking about the third world the areas of the world where, where this help is really, really needed. And like you say, it's like climate change is far from us. We see it, we believe in it, but what can you do about it? But the same thing, of course, is also true when you talk about the problems that we have far, far away from us. So, I mean, the, kind of the, the, the conversation we have right now kind of reminds me of my first podcast, which was the first one in 2018 with Mauricio Vecchione. And he talked about catalytic invention and he uh, introduced what he calls the, the framework of the three A's, making, making innovation that, that the more of those A's you cover, accessibility, affordability, and applicability, if you, if you tick those boxes, you, you, st you start to create innovation that not only solves problems in the third world, but pr primarily also in, in the first world. I started thinking about that when you started talking about the part of the introduction, Uber, Uber yourself before you get codex, the transformative part of things. So working with AI, of course, can do a lot of good things, but a lot of companies out there use AI not to its full potential. It's like making incremental changes to things rather than a transformational part. So the question at the end is for many companies, how do you do that? How do you get to this transformative type of change? Have you got any tips on that? Because the book is a practical guide to, to do that. Have you got any stories that can help organizations out there get to the transformative change that we're all looking for? Yeah, I, I, I do. It's, it's interesting because we, you know, we always think problem, solution. 
And it's like, we, we know some of the problems. We can use AI to help create a solution, but we're forgetting the mindset. How do we kind of create the buy-in around it? So there, there's actually a company called Cyrano AI. It was started by a therapist and a neurolinguist. And they started off because they wanted to help depressed and suicidal teenagers. And so they try to apply the science of language and have AI kind of understand so that if someone's talking, you can understand their, their intent or level of commitment to something. Like, is this person like seriously going to yeah. like kill themselves? Would it be today, tomorrow, something like that? And I told them that one of their biggest challenges would be getting people to believe that. Right. So one, yeah, could yeah. a machine do something like that? And two, could it do better than a person or at least as good as a person? And they're like, well, yeah, I don't know that, you know, like, okay, it's maybe a little too dangerous to start by testing it on suicidal teenagers. So they went to something innocuous, which was a car dealership and said, we could we want to use our technology to see if we can help you figure out if a person's interested in buying a car, like would they buy a car today within a week or they're just kind of window shopping and we'll, we'll probably won't buy for at least six months. Mm-hmm. And they actually hit that very resistance saying like, what are you talking about? There's no way this could work, right? How can a machine know something better than a person, right? You but can. It's, it's so innocuous that they're like, fine, we'll, we'll give it a whirl and show you up, right? They went 30 for 30, right? They, really? They, yeah, they pre- accurately predicted 30 potential customers what they would do. And that got the dealership owner kind of mind whirling. He's like, I don't know if you guys are taking – investment money but i want to be your first investor because this thing really works yeah. right and sometimes you have to kind of the proofs in the pudding show a little bit of traction to do that but these were the only two guys that really believed this could be done so that mindset yeah. component that getting that buy-in is so critical to drive adoption yeah it's believe well first of all i think it starts with thinking big but then of course you get to, you have to get your believers and too often we, uh, people think well yeah Dream on. <laughs> this, this is science fiction, uh, where it actually can, be, uh, can happen. I mean, it reminds me of the interview that I did with Mike Snyder from First, who has now been, he sold his company to Remark in the US, who created a tool that would give real estate agents people on a plate that were in the market to eat their house just before they were going to do that. And these, these real estate agents didn't want to talk about it because it was the secret weapon. Uh, it became antiviral. <laughs> so it's, it shows the power again. Yeah. So how do you have the question at the end? Is like, how, how do you, have you got any frameworks figured out with companies out there that, yeah, how do you get to that, that, that level of thinking that it goes beyond incrementally improving what's already there? I won't sugarcoat it. I mean, it's hard, Ton. I mean, and you, have to, you have to find the right way to show the value. And what I've learned is it's just the approach, like, you know, bringing AI into healthcare, doctors and nurses, a lot of their first reactions, whoa, they're trying to replace me with a robot, right? Yeah. And so we really had to frame this and say, look, we're trying to give you a tool just to help you do your job. This, this tool is like your stethoscope, right? You use it. It's not doing anything unless you tell it to do that, yep. right? And it's just helping you crunch some data right? Help you save some time so you can focus more on the patient, the diagnosis. So we, yeah. we had a very much light touch it. And there was still a lot of blowback to that because there was a, a fear factor. One, 
either people didn't believe it or two, they were like, whoa, if this thing actually works, is it going to highlight like all my inadequacies or the mistakes that I made? Yeah, that's another really big one, yeah. Yeah, and so we really had to frame this as let, let's take some baby steps and kind of test it out. We want your expert opinion to see if is it working. So one, try and make them part of the process. Yeah. And two, really just try and frame it as a tool because that's really what it is. The goal wasn't trying to replace them. True. And what typically and, also, what I've, I've heard a number of times now is that, okay, yes, okay, of course, it can do a lot what you're doing today. And you can do that. Let's say, I mean, the, the argument of, I think it was a piece of research around detecting cancer cells in photos or in, in, in scans. And the, the AI could get to a 93 or 94% accuracy mm-hmm. and uh, a very good doctor could get, could get to 50, 95%. You could say, okay, doctor is always better. But it wasn't about either or. The moment you started to combine the two together, you got to 89 or 99% co- uh, coverage. And that's what you're looking for. That's transformative. <laughs> yeah, 100%, right? And it's, it's interesting that it, if you call it a few percentage points, it makes a huge difference. Exactly. It makes a huge difference on people's lives. It makes a huge difference on people dying, yes or no. Everything and everything that's connected connected to that. Cost of healthcare, and I mean, just giving an example of healthcare here, but yeah, because yeah, you were talking about it as well. So one thing I realized what you're saying, I was asking you maybe two tough questions around what is the framework, what is the silver bullet here to create transformative change? Because I, I spent four chapters on this in my book. And I realize how hard it is. And there is no silver bullet according to me as well. But one thing that, I, that is always fascinating me is that a lot of people think that innovation is something like almost like a one-off event or you have to create, you have to put a team together for that that is doing the innovation. And what I've come to believe right now after all the interviews that I've done is that the innovation comes from creating the culture around it which is also a topic that you are speaking on a lot, I've seen. So any tips from your end, how, how organizations, uh, technology companies can create this culture of innovation? Yeah, yes, for sure. I think it really, start, it really boils down to what's the first thing or question you're going to ask, right? I, I hate to say it this way, but you know, when someone brings forward like a new idea, most people are, are resistant. They, they don't like change. And so they find ways to try and poke holes in it, right? How what won't work for this, won't for that. I think to really create this culture, you need to help people ask, you know, a better first question, which I usually think is, how would we make this work, right? Kind of respin and say, well, if we're going to try and do this idea, how would we actually do it? What what are the things that would be involved in the steps? And try and explore it. Maybe you don't find a path to make it a reality, and that's okay. At least you tried. Yeah. But too often I see the, the culture is that they, the, I'm, I don't like change. I'm going to beat it down rather than say, okay, well, how can I make it work? Yeah, that's true. It's giving people the freedom to fail and right. then not see them as making things fail, but actually we've learned something because now at least we know this is not the path, <laughs> well, which is a totally different way of approaching things. Yeah, and I think that's that's a big point to all this as well and trying to establish the culture is that saying that failure is okay, yeah. right? We live with the stigma that if we fail, we're going to get knocked or we're going to lose our job, right? And it's, it's not trying to say we're making some kind of catastrophic business-ending failure. If we, if we don't try, we're not going to get very far. I actually ask people, like especially like a lot of the entrepreneurs that I, I tend to help out, 
if you is you know being 100% successful a good thing right and they realize there's some sort of trick question here right because they're like well wouldn't you always want to be successful like well no you don't want to always be 100% successful and then ask them why you kind of stumble and I, I you know I believe if you're 100% successful you're actually not taking enough risk yeah true right that's a good one <laughs> Because <laughs> that's that you're really doing things that you can predict, and you're almost hundred percent or ninety nine percent sure that that is going to work out. Yes, you're successful, but the question is, what is the impact that you're making? And I think yeah. that is the missing point here. Yeah, and is the impact an exponential thing, or is it transformative enough? Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, I see that a lot. Yeah, and it's it's like it's again, it's a mindset, right? I mean, we go through school, we don't want to fail our classes, we don't want to do these things, but it's. We're, we're not, not taught to take proper risks or at least do good risk assessments. And I think that's part of the struggle of a lot of these companies in that, you know, we have a great idea and we want to do these things, but we, we don't have the risk appetite. We don't have the mindset. We don't have the culture to actually be successful. You could have a great idea, build an amazing product, but if you can't convince people of the value if you can't take yeah. a little bit of risk and roll the dice, so to speak, to try and make it successful and transformative, guess what? It's not going to happen. There's an interesting thing in itself. I'm currently doing Alt-MBA, um, Seth Godin's program. And yesterday evening, the prompt number four was about empathy and looking into the mindset of certain entrepreneurs, for example, from my perspective, I did that, what is driving their decisions. And very often, it might be that the mindset is like, I want to make an impact, but the internal measurements are working counterproductive. I mean, I've seen it at work, for example, being stock listed as a company where you have shareholders to, to showcase every quarter how you're growing profit-wise, being private equity owned, similar thing. It, it becomes the, the focus moves from, from the innovation or the impact side in terms of the impact you make on customers to the impact you make on private equity itself, which is the exit. Have you seen those examples that work in, in a positive or negative way? I have, and unfortunately, mostly negative way. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, it, interestingly, I actually learned about this in, when I was in business school long ago that, you know, if you're a manager thinking about building a successful company, you know, you're, you're looking at things like, you know, market share and IRR and all that, and NPV. Whereas if you're a shareholder, you know, you're, you're looking at like earned value and stock price and those kinds of things. And, and depending on what you want to do, you'll actually make different decisions. And I think one of the worst things we might have done is we've turned a lot of the management into shareholders. And yeah. so I've seen gigantic, well-established global Fortune 500 companies make poor decisions because of this, because they're thinking about their stock rather than the company. Yeah. But I've also unfortunately seen a lot of entrepreneurs do the exact same thing. And it's, it's, it's mind-boggling. I think just generally speaking, we've sacrificed true long-term sustained growth for short-term gains, you know, kind of boost up the stock price. Yeah. And ironically right now, at least in the United States, you know, with the, the market basically tumbling around, you see a lot of companies that are essentially cash poor because they use literally billions of their own dollars to buy their stock back rather than reinvest it in the company or, or do other things to make the capital work for them. Yeah. And now they're, a lot more paying a pretty heavy price for that. 
Well, turning the whole discussion going back to combining technology for social good and for business growth, you're involved in United Nations, AI subject matter experts. I mean, at the United Nations, of course, they're looking at the global, the global perspective. And of course, AI is providing a lot of potential, but of course, it also provides challenges. So what are the key topics that are on the agenda of the UN that, that need addressing? And how does UN, for example, what is UN in this case doing in order to, pr- to promote these, these innovations for social good? Well, great questions, Tom. So, I mean, in addition to, you know, trying to leverage the technology for the SDGs, they're looking at policy and regulation around the technology, but they're, uh-huh. they're trying to define like some standards, right? Some, some, Ethical, ethical standards, or at least what, what is, quote-unquote, right use of the technology. Yeah. And it's a really hard thing to do if you think about it because technology knows no boundaries, right? Not true. What's acceptable, like, in a place like maybe Spain may not be acceptable in Canada. I'm just using that as a, an example. But, true. you know, you, you look at, like, China where they've outfitted their police officers with AI-powered Google Glass, and so when they see somebody... They know who you are, your name, your address, where you work, where you've been the last two hours. And, you know, in China, they love that because it's like it helps keep people safe. It helps catch criminals faster, help find lost children faster. But I think if you were to put that into the EU or the United States, a lot of people would be fearful and say, well, it's kind of an invasion of privacy. It's, it's a little too big brotherish, you know, little, and, 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 it's, it's problematic. And so the UN is trying to kind of figure out what's kind of the baseline standard that we should all be working from. Yes. And, and a lot of this is actually being done through an initiative I helped them launch called AI for Good, where we're trying to build an ecosystem of partners, of member nations, of industry, academia, nonprofits, to actually, one, answer these questions, figure out the right standards, figure out good policies, regulation, but also do these projects. And I can say actually today we have about 116 active projects going on around the SDGs and around, you know, trying to figure out quote unquote right use. Yeah. And it goes into so many different areas. Uh, it's like explainability, of course, it's about indeed privacy and how long your data is captured. For example, in the Netherlands, they're, they're currently working, I think they're testing a number of apps in relation to, to fighting Corona. First of all, that one app that is tracking where you've been and, and what people you've been in contact with, because they also, of course, then would have the app, so you can track that. And then an app that is kind of tracking how you feel. And the moment those things, yeah, the, the, the moment you feel like, okay, I'm, I'm getting poorer, you know, I'm not feeling well, I've got symptoms, then because they know where you've been, they can immediately give a signal to the people that, that you've met in the last two, two weeks, for example, for them to get a test going on so that you can really get, get to the source and uh, yeah, prevent things from breaking out again. And that's, that discussion is a huge one in the Netherlands already. <laughs> Do we want this? Do we want this? And there's, there's more of that to come. Um, well, for sure, we're actually battling the same thing in the United States. And, you know, AI and technology in general is a tool, right? It's all about how we use it. Most people would normally say something like, you know, tracking people and capturing information about symptoms and 
is it a, you know, a, a privacy concern, but with COVID-19, people are actually setting that concern away and say, this is really for the general good, like right? for public health. We have to do it. So it's, it's, a, it's an interesting debate right now. It is. Yeah, exactly. And the question at the end is, how far, do you, how far does, does it help to bring the borders forward? And what will come from there? Because there you can do all kind of innovation from that that people actually would like to have rather than feel as something that they're feeling that they're being tracked. Yeah, that's interesting. So good that this is happening at a global level, at UN level, and to see how we can, how we can challenge this. Because, well, I mean, at the end, it's, it's like we have to solve this together. We, the future will be what we want it to be. I like that quote. I'm not sure who gave that at some point in time, but that's, I think, that's the way I think about it as well. And let's push it forward so that we get rid of things that we've become accustomed, accustomed to that, we, that have become the norm but shouldn't be the norm. Absolutely. And I, and I feel like, you know, we talk about the future. We actually all have the opportunity to kind of be a driver to help shape that future. I think too many of us kind of feel like we're the passenger. What happens, happens. But I think we're all in a unique position to help actually shape that. Yeah, true. Not, not just with COVID, not just with AI, but we all know problems. And I think from problems are actually opportunities. It's a question if we're willing to pursue that and do something either small, big, or transformative to create that future. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the questions that is that's always dear to me because simply I wrote a book about it, The Remarkable Effect, it's about how to, yeah, what, what defines a remarkable software company or a company that people, that creates products that people find worth making a remark about. That's the simple explanation of that. And I mean, since you, you, you've been in business for a long time and you, you're, in, 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 you're working with so many companies and, and at UN level, what do you see? What do you see as critical traits that companies should have to really make a difference out there? I really think they have to have the intrapreneurial mindset, right? If you, you know, we always talk about entrepreneurial. Intrapreneurial is you build the same type of culture and mindset within your own company. I think we have to give the, the people kind of the freedom to not just ideate, but to explore, to enable our employees to do that. To have them ask that question, like, how could I make this work? And, and be open to, 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 I'll call it more risk-taking and a little more accepting of failure, right? Otherwise, it's really hard to change. If you've always been focused on making money, again, nothing wrong with that. It's really hard to shift and become a social enterprise, right? Yeah. These, a lot of these things, are they really start with the culture that you create. And that culture stops, starts, I should say, with the leadership, right? They sure. have to kind of set the tones, change the reward system, and lead by example to actually make this transformation. Yeah, it's very interesting that you point about the reward system because, I mean, a lot of companies say A, but then do B because of the reward system. It's counterproductive. Have you seen seen any specific reward system or reward elements at at work that really help to create this culture of innovation in this case? Help create this culture of innovation actually... Yes. You know, you look at some of the, the big like tech companies, like, you know, Google always talks about the 20%. Yeah, true. They, they do, you know, incentivize the employees to try some of these things, right? Actually, by not trying something, you get penalized, right? So <laughs> it's, it's kind of an interesting, interesting mode there. 
I hate to say it this way. There's there's several very large companies that I know that, you know, even though they say A, but they incentivize B, yep. even though they know there's that problem with the reward system, they're reluctant to change it. And unfortunately, it's often because the the people who can change it are the ones that actually benefit the most from the reward system. True. Yeah, exactly. True. Well, yeah, this, this makes me think again. Entrepreneurial mindsets and the reward system that needs to be right, that's where you get... Yeah, that's where you get to create a flywheel almost. Once you get that going, you get more people involved from the, within the company to create new ideas, to experiment, and to create these small steps forward. At the end, it becomes a big step forward. So, yeah, I mean, looking at normally, I ask the question, what's next for you? Or maybe I should ask the question, what's next for you? What is the, kind of, what is the biggest thing on your priority list in order to, to make this happen? AI for social good and business. Well, what's next for me is to really drive what I'm calling solutionists, right? Okay. So, so far we've done a good job about creating the awareness and, and building like this e- ecosystem or community. You know, we're sharing solutions and trying to get people to partner together. But what's really next for me is to help people realize that you are a solutionist. You can bring something to the table, small or big, mm-hmm. that's going to help, you know, drive social impact, drive it with AI or you know, other technology. But I want to get people in the mindset that every, each one of us can actually be the solutionist. I won't kid you, Don. It's, it's, it's a monumental challenge, but it's a challenge worth taking up. Yeah. Is it a movement, so to say? It might be. It might be. I've heard a couple of people say that. And, you know, it would be a transformational effect on society, right? Rather than us yeah. just sitting here like, things kind of are the way they are and you know we're we're not as galvanized as we could be to do something about it to kind of change that mindset i think would be phenomenal i mean imagine the power the innovation the transformation and the good we could bring to bear if everyone thought you know what i'm a solutionist and i can make a difference yeah and it's very often it starts with the people inside your company that step up and regardless of their job that then don't say well this is not my job but actually say, I'm picking this up. I'm going to drive this because I believe in that. Like I said, I'm doing the old MBA from Seth Godin. I read his book, Lynchpin, which is all about that. You know, don't be, be, don't be a cog in the, the bigger system. Be a linchpin and become what he calls the uh, indispensable. And I think that's, that is sort of the, the word that also describes your word solutionist. We want indeed, we want more people to, to, to be like that. I mean, is there anything already out there online that where people can go to and, and find out how they be, can, can become a solutionist and how, okay, how they can use it in their day-to-day work in order to make that difference? There's a couple of things. So, I mean, if people want to visit the United Nations AI for Good website, you can just Google that and it'll pop up. It actually talks about how people can be part of a solution and how they can actually contribute ideas and things like that. There's also another organization yeah. called Planet Home where they're very focused on planetary services and, and creating an ecosystem to, to help the planet. And they've kind of got things divided up by the major factors of life, eat, make, move, live. And they also t- very much talk about how people can be a solutionist because they, they also believe that each one of us probably wants to do something. We just don't know how to get started. And so they, they kind of provide that kind of, you know, framework and matchmaking to empower people to actually do that cool really good 
Any other website that people should go to that, uh, that you haven't mentioned yet? Well, if they would like to connect with me, learn more, or you know, help yeah, out with some sure. things, they can always come to my website, which is just my name, neilsahoda.com. Of course, always, you can always connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Very good. Well, thanks, Neil. This was inspiring. I mean, we, we covered great ground here from disruption to social good to AI to United Nations and, and everything in between. I got a lot of ideas from this, and I hope my audience did exactly the same. Any last words that you want to leave with? I think this was fantastic, and I hope it was fun and useful for everybody out there. And, you know, just remember at the end of the day, you, you actually have a lot more power and influence than you might realize. And what you choose to wield with it is, is totally up to each of you. But, you know, just remember, no matter how good or bad things are, there's always opportunities. So always keep your eye out for them. That's wise advice. I'll leave it to that. Thank you very much. Thanks, Todd. And this ends my interview with Neil. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Please share your thoughts about this episode or any question that you have for us. And if you liked it and got inspired by it, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thanks for tuning in to this podcast today. I had the honor to speak to Neil Sahoda, who is an IBM Master Inventor, United Nations AI Subject Matter Expert, and a professor at the University of California, Irvine. As said... The goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission, that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book, or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.